This is the Creative Agency Podcast, where we explore the strategies, aspirations, methods, and mistakes behind growing and maintaining a successful creative agency. Welcome to the 12th episode of the Creative Agency Podcast. My name is Chris Bolton. I'll be your host. We have a really great show for you today. It's actually on one of my favorite topics, mistakes. We all make mistakes. Mistakes are wonderful. They help us grow. They make us humble. They make us human. In a growing agency, mistakes are always opportunities to learn. A few weeks back, I ran across an article on HubSpot's agency post titled, We documented our agency's mistakes every week for a year. Here's what we learned. I was immediately intrigued and I was not disappointed. The article is fantastic. I'll put a link in the show notes so you can read it yourself. I decided to reach out to the author, agency owner Ross Byler of Growth Spark, and he agreed to share his story on the Creative Agency podcast. Now, I know we usually do three takeaways at the end of the show. This episode is a little different because it has, count them, 10 takeaways. Can you handle it? That's more than double the number of takeaways for the same price of free. Crazy, I know. Don't forget to follow the Creative Agency on Facebook and Twitter, and let's get to that interview. All right. Well, I'm here with Ross Byler. Actually, uh, you know, I don't know if I know where you're located, Ross. <laughs> <laughs> we're uh, we're based in Cambridge, Mass. So right outside of Boston. Oh, nice. Yeah. And and the way that I actually came across you and your agency was because of this wonderful article you wrote about all of the mistakes <laughs> um, that you recorded for an entire year. That's what we're going to talk about today is that process and what uh, you and your team learned from it. But I'd like to start getting a little bit of background about Growth Spark, your agency, and and how it came to be. How did uh, Growth Spark begin? Sure. Uh, so I actually had another company uh, before GrowSpark while I was in college, and we were exploring the intersection of art and technology, doing some cool things, ended up actually raising some money, dropping out of school, kind of doing the full startup thing, and just failed miserably. I mean, did everything wrong that you could possibly imagine <laughs> as a, a first-time entrepreneur. And uh, when that kind of came to a conclusion, I kind of found myself, you know, college dropout, in, in, in debt, you know, failed company. I was like, what do I do? And starting another company seemed to somehow make sense. So um, it was uh, it was kind of the the process of looking at what I had learned doing that, and uh, you know did some design work, some development work, et cetera, in the process, and said, hey, you know, at best, I'm sure I can make a little bit of money helping other entrepreneurs kind of avoid the mistakes that I made. Uh, let's see what I can do with that. So uh, went back to school uh, to finish up my degree. Just started doing it uh, while I was in school, and uh, once I graduated, had enough clientele and interest to to kind of keep going. Went full time with it, and it's been uh, six years since. So what what was your uh, degree in? It was actually, believe it or not, in uh, in business. So I have no real training on the design or development side. So uh, um, even though I run a design dev shop, it's uh, it's my my forte is much more on the strategy and marketing and operations side. Oh, that's great. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, a lot of times, a lot of the people I've talked to have either a yeah designer development background, but it's always interesting to hear different different stories, different approaches to creating an agency. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, how how many employees does Growth Spark have? Yeah, so we're a team of eight. Uh, and we use we use a little bit of a blended model. So you know we have some folks that uh, that work full time as traditional employees, and then we have uh, a few folks that we um, that have their own clientele, but we kind of have a retainer with them, so they're working part time kind of with us, uh, which works out really well uh, because we've got guaranteed bandwidth, and we can you know do what we need to, and they have got uh, kind of guaranteed work from us, and it becomes a really nice relationship. Um, 
which uh, which has kind of helped us scale up and down over the years as well. How did you find clients? How did you grow growth spark in the beginning? Yeah, when I was first getting started, uh, I actually, uh, my freshman year in college, I had interned with a, a gentleman who ran a sort of consulting firm, particularly for startups, and went back to him and was just like, hey, listen, you know, I went, tried to do the startup thing, didn't work out, as we can see, you know, do you have any work at all? Uh, other clients that just need someone to set up their email, register a domain name, mow their lawn, whatever it is, just let me know and I'll, <laughs> I'll help. And, uh, and that actually led to, you know, two or three introductions, uh, which became clients, did some good work there and got some referrals from them. And sooner or later, you know, within about nine months or so, found myself with about a dozen clients, you know, while, again, while still in school, but just kind of working on their projects. And, and that was the genesis, really. Uh, early days was all just kind of that referral, word of mouth, kind of network leveraging approach to grow in the business. That's great. How would you say that GrowSpark is is different from other agencies? How, uh, sort of what's your, you know, your unique selling proposition? Yeah, it's a good question. It's something I, I think a lot about, you know, and I have even since the early days, you know, I'm a big believer in the, the term kind of niche to get rich. Uh, you know, sort of the idea of really focusing in on a specific market segment to to differentiate, um, because everyone knows there's you know tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of agencies out there. Uh, so you can't just kind of sing the same song as everyone else. We in the f- in the first four years of the company, so full time years, so 2010 to 2013 or so. Uh, we actually specialized specifically in doing custom WordPress-based websites. So mm-hmm. we were doing uh, custom design, custom development, uh, did, did quite a few of those projects, and actually saw the market kind of shifting towards the end of 2013. It really wasn't a strong differentiator for us anymore. Everyone was kind of doing WordPress. There were a lot of pre-built themes and kind of DIY solutions. So we had looked at, at um, some of the other work that we had done, and we had dabbled in e-commerce, had some really good success with it, and saw that market kind of blowing up with you know, the rise of kind of the maker movement and Kickstarter and Indiegogo and, um, you know, all these other crowdfunding methods. You see a lot of new kind of product entrepreneurs coming to market and with tools like Shopify and Big Commerce and all these other companies making it really easy to kind of get into the e-commerce side on the tech, tech side of it. Um, we saw it as a huge opportunity. So we actually decided to kind of go all in coming into 2014 on strictly doing custom design developed e-commerce sites and specifically on the Shopify platform. Oh, nice. Yeah, we work with uh, Shopify as well. We still do a lot of WordPress builds, but but yeah, Shopify has been sort of with the you know smaller, medium businesses that don't need a huge, robust e-commerce solution. It seems like Shopify is a pretty good solution. Yeah, Absolutely. So, you, you know, looking at your website, it seems like you really focus on ROI for your clients. Um, how do you ensure that that growth happens? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, we, you know, we're very upfront and honest in, in our conversations with clients and tell them like, listen, we can't guarantee anything. If anyone does, they're probably lying to you. Uh, but what we can do is look at, you know, our past work and, and our, the trend is that we, we seem to be able to uh, consistently deliver some sort of improvement in conversion rate optimization is primarily kind of our focus. And a lot of that, you know, I think what what's what works well in our favor is that there are a lot of um, kind of low hanging fruit in the world of e-commerce, right? Little tweaks and improvements that you can make to to really help a client uh, see more success. You know, whether that's um, just straight. Uh, changes to the website to make buying easier and, and kind of improve conversion right there, whether it's introducing some customer retention strategies like email marketing and marketing automation to help kind of improve the lifetime value of clients. You know, there's a lot of opportunities that that a lot of companies are kind of overlooking some of the smaller things. Mm-hmm. Um, so so that's always great. And I think, frankly, a lot of the work that we do is, is folks moving from uh, fairly antiquated platforms, um, you know, things that 
that aren't integrated with the other systems that run their business that uh, aren't easy to manage, you know, that aren't responsive, mobile responsive, et cetera. So oftentimes just, just getting them on Shopify, regardless of the quality of design is enough to make a pretty big impact on the business. Um, so it's, it's nice to kind of combine those two things to, to really see a, a nice impact for our clients. Nice. And I, if I remember correctly, you sort of, you published some of those stats in like case studies on your website. Yep. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious, how long do you wait before you sort of gather that information? Like, do you look like a year out from the time the site was launched or you just like, or, you know, a month after launch, you're like, Hey, bounce rates down and, and click through rate is up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, next day we're good. Let's publish it. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I'd say, you know, on average, at least six months, um, you know, uh, somewhere between six to 12 months is, is probably about, you know, enough time to see at least through two season cycles you know, or quarters, et cetera. Uh, you know, and to see a little bit of average, uh, you know, there's always that post-launch uh, hype, you know, clients are marketing the the new website, they're putting more money in, into it, and they're kind of seeing just a general bump in traffic, and past clients are excited. So there's a little bit of that hype factor that you have to kind of get past, you know, that in that first month. Um, so we find that six months is usually enough to start seeing more trend kind of data. Cool. Yeah, I, we have not been super good about um, tracking that sort of thing and publishing it, using it to our advantage in the past as an agency. That's something that we're sort of working on. So I was kind of curious about that. I'm starting starting to gather some of that data so that we can use it in our marketing materials. Yeah, totally. That's good to know. What is the average cost of a GrowthSpark project? Yeah, it's, um, it's a good question. I mean, everything, as you know, kind of depends on requirements, depends on the scope of work. Uh, that being said, you know, we, we do specialize, obviously, specifically on Shopify, specifically doing custom design sites. Um, you know, so the clients that are working with us, they, you know, they're ten, they tend to be in that kind of one to $10 million revenue range. So they're doing, they're doing fair amount of volume, um, at least enough where, you know, improving conversion rate by 20% even might lead to a couple hundred thousand dollars of new revenue for them. So, totally. you know, the kind of investments that we see for our projects are usually in the range of about 25000 to 150000 depending on the client. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but one thing that we found that works really well is that we'll oftentimes break out sort of the upfront strategy work. Uh, if, it's a, if it's a smaller company, we might even just do kind of a, a, a boot camp, we call it, sort of an afternoon session uh, to work on their strategy. If it's a li- larger engagement, larger client, then we might kind of spread it out over the course of a week or two um, to really kind of dive in and understand the business. And so that sort of discovery period, do you charge separately for it? We do. Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, usually what we'll kind of do is carve out about roughly 10% of the budget uh, that we have in mind for the project as a, as a means to kind of cover the cost of doing that planning stuff. Um, you know, and that'll do, that'll include some wireframing, analytics analysis, if they have it available, um, data architecture, architecting, you know, around how they manage project uh, products, excuse me. So there's a lot of that that kind of goes into those um, kind of deeper planning and kind of strategy phases. Um, as part of the deliverable of the discovery project, is the the price of the final project, or have you already sort of established that? Yeah. So usually, what we'll do is we'll establish a range. So let's say it's a you know whatever in the thirty to forty five thousand dollar range, uh, and then we'll do the strategy phase for five thousand, um, and then that will uh, you know that that thirty to forty five will then be finalized at the conclusion of the planning phase. So all of our engagements are fixed cost. Um, mm-hmm. but we just often don't actually fix that cost until we get through the planning portion of it. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. Sometimes we will at Murmur Creative do a paid discovery. It really depends on the on the size of the client and whether we think that that might turn them off from the project or something like that. But yeah. I, I do like that model to be able to, you know, sort of say, hey, we're we're not going to just throw out a price until we actually know a little bit more about what we're going to be doing. Exactly. Exactly. And the big thing too, I mean, we found in particular when you're doing e-commerce work, 
is oftentimes there's a lot of um, a lot of different platforms that need to be integrated, right? So you have your your product management tool, you have your inventory management tool, your shipping management tool, uh, and in some instances Shopify can do, kind of serve um, as as the the hub for all of those things. But in a lot of cases, clients have you know whatever a third party vendor. Uh, that does fulfillment, or they have you know some specific accounting requirements. So it, it often leads to a situation where we really need to dive into uh, these third-party platforms, their APIs, you know, their existing connectors, etc. Uh, so having some time to do that properly is is really important, and that's why a lot of that um, time is spent upfront in that kind of planning phase. That makes sense. What would you say one of is one of Growth Spark's uh, biggest challenges right now? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the structure that we have as a company, so there's three designers, three developers, uh, project manager, and myself. So my time is spent on sort of the sales, marketing, uh, and some strategy work. And the the challenge that we have is that I'm I'm a bottleneck, right? So if I'm mm-hmm. on vacation for a week, um, you know, I'm really not getting any marketing done, really not getting any new deals closed. So we're we're in this situation. It's sort of like the the hit by the bus test. You know, if something happens to me, well, that's kind of de- going to derail the company quite a bit because there's no one to kind of take over my role uh, on the new business side. You know, existing clients mm-hmm. will be fine, projects will get done, but when it comes to generating new business, that that burden is on me. So. The challenge for us right now is trying to figure out what is the best way to kind of clone me or scale me. Uh, we've experimented with hiring salespeople in the past with mixed results. Um, mm-hmm. We're leaning more towards a direction of how can I kind of offload the activities that I have so that I'm spending more time on what I'd call sort of the high leverage activities. So the things that are going to get in front of more people that are going to have more impact and sort of the, the, the lower level or the more tactical tasks could be possibly tackled by someone else. Um, mm-hmm. you know, so I spend more time doing things like podcasts or writing or teaching workshops or networking events, et cetera, and less time doing sort of the day-to-day editing or, um, you know, not necessarily writing everything, maybe only writing key articles, things like that. So trying to kind of get myself out of the day-to-day. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, so you have plans to hire? Do you think this year for that or next year? Or? Yeah, this year for sure. It's it's a position we're looking to hire right now. Um, you know, looking at different options. Is it is it uh, another agency that handles it for us? Is it a, a part time person? Is it a full time person? You know, we're trying to be as open minded as possible and focus more on more on what the activities themselves look like and kind of figure out okay what type of a role best fits those activities rather than just saying, well, we'll hire someone and figure it out. Um, you know, right. so really trying to be strategic in it. Right. Nice. Nice. Sounds like a good plan. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. So, um, we're here to talk about mistakes and I'm very excited. I, when I saw your article, I was like, Oh, this is, this is exactly the sort of content I'm looking for because I feel like when, <laughs> When we make mistakes, it's so important for us to to pay attention to them and learn from them and call them out and look at them. And um, you were obviously doing that. You did it for a full year. How did how did it come about? What what was the impetus for for recording all your mistakes? Yeah. So we um so we for probably at least the last two years actually because I'll have to dig it up for you. I actually wrote a similar article back in two thousand reflecting on 2014. So we tracked all in 2014, tracked all in 2015, uh, tracking all this year. What we do as a company is every Monday and Friday, uh, we get together and we have on Monday what we call weekly projections, where we sit down and basically plan out the week, run through all our projects, run through the deliverables, the schedule, et cetera, make sure everyone's on the same page. Pretty pretty standard, kind of all hands on deck type meeting. Um, mm-hmm. But what we do on Friday is what we call weekly reflections. Uh, and I'm, I'm a sucker for anything that rhymes, so the, <laughs> the name's kind of stuck. And during <laughs> weekly reflections, 
the the focus is less on where are we at with projects and more on how are we doing as a team and how do we feel as people and what we'll do is we'll, we'll literally, you know, I'll go around the table and everyone will talk about their week. And what we try to do is look at three areas in particular. So one is, uh, what are the issues? So what are the issues that you ran into this this week? You know, was there a problem on a technical thing? Was there a problem with a, a particular client? Was there a problem between two team members, et cetera? The second thing that we like to look at is, is what we call uh, sort of the, the insights or, or lessons learned where we then go around and sort of say, okay, were there any interesting little insights in this week? Anything that you learned, any, any new tick, uh, you know, tips, tricks, resources, um, you know, whatever, ideas on how we can manage communication better, how we can manage clients better. And the last thing that we do is we kind of take those insights and try to turn them into what we call initiatives, uh, which are specific projects that will ideally put in place new systems, processes, people, whatever it might be, that solve the issues that the insights are trying to appeal to, right? So if a problem mm-hmm. around project management is identified and the insight is that we need, um, you know, whatever, let's say a weekly summary email of the project status, then the initiative might be creating an email template for our project manager to use uh, on a weekly basis. So that sort of cycle of what's the problem, what's the solution, and then acting on it um, is sort of the rhythm that we're, we've been getting into. You know, we've been, we've been really good about tracking lessons learned um, so that sort of insights piece of it over the last couple of years. And it's just recently that we started to explore on how do we action, you know, if you will, actionize that into this idea of initiatives as well. Well, that's really great. Um, do you have some examples of some of the mistakes that you've um, made and recorded over the last couple of years? Yeah. Um, I mean, if you'd like, we can definitely kind of run through some of the specific ones uh, in the in the blog post if if uh, if you'd like, because there's plenty of, plenty of big ones in that one. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. Might... Let's, we're just going to go over 10 of the, the top lessons learned from the blog post. And then if uh, listeners want to go and listen and read the whole article, we'll provide the link. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I can kind of pick out, uh, you know, a couple of my favorite ones here. You know, this, the second one on the list here is transition from managing a sales pipeline to a relationship pipeline. It, this is something that's really, really started to sink in over the last six months, 12 months. Um, you know, we, we kind of made this transition into e-commerce, like I said, about two years ago or so coming into 2014. And it was a big change for us. I mean, we had to reposition ourselves as an agency and we had basically to get everyone in, in our community and network to know that that's our, our focus. And one of the things that we realized is that we had actually had a number of interesting conversations with e-commerce companies prior to that. Um, you know, looking through our, our CRM, I was like, wow, we've actually talked to a couple of interesting folks. And, you know, the year goes by and we start having more and more conversations with e-commerce companies. And naturally, not everyone's going to be a good fit for us at that particular time. But as time went on, you know, I kept coming back to this as we started doing e-commerce events and e-commerce workshops and realized that there's tremendous value in in not getting obsessed with does this person fit our particular sales process and is this person going to be active in our sales pipeline but rather look at it and sort of say is this the type of person or the type of business that that we could help and maybe not now but maybe in six months or 12 months or 24 months and starting to be a bit more proactive in kind of the nurturing aspect if you will of of the relationship Mm -hmm. that we have with them so what we've really done is try to put those relationships at the forefront, regardless of whether they're going to be an active deal or not, so that anytime we're doing an interesting event or a blog article comes out or a workshop is in the works, 
Um, we try to make sure that that's put in front of anyone who could be a potential client at any point. So really trying to think more about the long-term value that we can help for these, for these potential clients uh, as much as we do on sort of the active or soon-to-be active clients. So are you sort of with those, with those clients, are you sending, you know, like email in, invites or updates or articles now and again, you know, I think you might find this useful, that sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, obviously we're not going to be quite as active or, or frequent in communication with them as we would uh, with someone that we're scoping out a project with, but it's, uh, it's enough to, you know, keep, keep in touch every quarter, every couple of months, whatever it might be. Exactly. Nice. Um, so yeah, so that was a biggie for, for me, just given my, my focus obviously on, uh, on sales and everything. The, uh, the next one that I think really stands out too is, um, you know, is, is actually probably a project maybe, maybe even only three months ago where, where we were really digging into this is this idea of focusing on, on problem solving and not just solution implementation. Um, and what we mean by that is that, you know, a client comes to us and something's going on in the project, you know, they're not happy. And oftentimes we, we immediately jump to trying to find a solution. Oh, well, we can code it this way. We could redesign it this way. Sometimes they are, they're coming to us with solutions in mind. The, the problem is when you start getting really obsessed with the particular solution is that you might, number one, not even solve the problem that's actually at hand, or, or two, just go down this rabbit hole of eating up budget, eating up time, trying to, uh, trying to get something to work when Oftentimes, it's a matter of just taking a step back and trying to figure out what is the actual problem at hand. Um, you know, do we want to redesign this page because uh, because you don't like the way it looks, or is it because it's not solving a core problem that your users are having? You know, so if you take a little bit of time, any any moment that a client comes with with a quote unquote emergency, and ask whether or not there's uh, there's a different perspective you should have on, on the problem and not just jump to a solution. A lot of times it will reveal that there might be an easier way uh, or just a different way of solving it than what you might immediately have in mind. Um, so we really try to encourage our, our team to, to take a step back, really ask about the problem and not just jump right into solution mode right away. Yeah, that's something that I actually experience a lot because uh, my specialty is SEO. And a lot of times clients will come to us with like, you got to fix the SEO, you know, we're not coming up number one, but in order to show up number one, like so many things need to happen first. It does not just pay an SEO guy to do something. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's not that easy, right? We'll be like, look, your website is horrible. You know, you, your branding is horrible. You don't have a social media presence. Like there's so much that needs to happen um, in order for your SEO to improve. You know, sure, we could take the money and just do some SEO stuff and they probably wouldn't be any further along in the end because what we really should be doing is telling them what's going to really solve their problems. Right, you right. Know? Yeah, it's, yeah, definitely something we've, we've tried to adopt as much as possible. Um, the next one actually right in the list here is, is don't view account management and project management as the same role. And, and this is something I know a lot of larger agencies already have kind of um, as part of their structure. So, you know, you find a lot of bigger agencies, they have a dedicated account manager uh, whose focus is really on, on nurturing that relationship. Um, with the client. So, you know, upselling them new projects, helping solve whatever, you know, business challenges they have, closing the initial deals, etc. Uh, and that role is distinct from the project management role, which is which is much more focused on sort of internal team management, resource management, execution of the scope, management of the deliverables, that, that sort of thing. You know, being a small agency, um, I, I'm a, in a sense, the de facto account management, uh, account manager, and then our project manager, Maddie, she's sort of our 
obviously project manager. And the challenge that, that she and I face is, you know, when do I step in versus when does she step in and who's the good cop, bad cop. And, you know, when do we focus more on the team's needs versus the client's needs and sort of dealing with the wrestle back and forth between these two roles. I think what, what has helped us in the last couple months is, you know, kind of towards the end of last year and coming into this year is at least understanding that there is a big difference in the responsibilities of an account manager and a project manager and ensuring that those responsibilities are getting done. Uh, because if, if you just look at it and sort of say, hey, project management is, is all we care about, just do your PM thing, and you kind of overlook that occasional check-in, the hey, client, how you doing, what's new in the business, um, you know, where, where do you see yourselves going in the next six to 12 months, if you overlook those types of interactions um, and, and just focus on the project management side, you overlook a huge uh, opportunity to further that relationship with the client and and help provide more value to them. Um, so really kind of distinguishing between those two things has, has been a lot more kind of top of mind for us. Yeah, we, we've been learning a lot of those same lessons ourselves. For a long time, we were just sort of the account director was doing the onboarding and then the client would never talk to them again. Right, right. <laughs> because it would, just, it would just be project management after that. And that is kind of disappointing and, you know, you, you lose the opportunity to sort of like check in with the client and make sure they're happy and mm -hmm. keep on building that relationship because that's the account director's job. Our project manager is just trying to get everything through the funnel as fast as possible and as efficiently as possible. And she doesn't have time to make sure that, you know, everybody's as happy as they could be. So yeah, making sure that that relationship is worked out and that the client has contact with both is, is really important. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree with that. Um, and, and a lot of this, you know, just talking account management kind of uh, parlays into the next point, you know, that I think we're really, really trying to be cognizant of is this idea of always, always kind of being in a sales mode. Um, and the idea here is not, you know, not to always be asking your client for more deals, you know, or, or more opportunities. I mean, there's a time and place for that. But, but really recognizing that even in the delivery process, after the contract is signed and everyone's on board with working together, you know, every single thing that you put in front of the client it needs to be sold. You know, you don't just throw a design in front of them and say, you know, what do you think? You need to stage that. You need to explain the why, you know, before you just jump into the what. Um, and really kind of spend the time uh, educating the team and getting the team excited, whether they're designers or developers or project managers, on providing the client the sort of necessary information and narrative around the, the decisions that we've made. Because uh, that's the biggest thing, is that they see the result of the decisions that you've made, but they don't see the process. You know, they don't see that decision-making process. So the idea of, of adding sort of the sales element to your workflow is the idea of really just exposing the, the decision-making process you have so that your clients understand, you know, why you arrived at a particular deliverable the way you did. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I mean, we, one of the things that we've sort of modified this year is that we, if all possible when presenting design, especially the logo work that we do, is we try to get the client in our office or we try to do a Skype or something where we can sort of walk them through the experience. Mm -hmm. Because if you just send a PDF of logos, like, who knows what they're going to develop as far as their opinions and ideas. And a lot of times we end up shooting ourselves in the foot if we don't take the time to sort of walk people through the process and explain what they're looking at and, you know, sell them the ideas that we've been developing. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Actually, what I'll do, I'll just jump ahead a little bit to, to the, the 16th um, point in, in the article, show, don't tell, only because I think it's exactly relevant to what you, what you just described. You know, we're, we're big believers too that, you know, there, there comes a point when you're talking to a client and, and pitching ideas and getting them excited about things where it's going to be far more valuable when you just start doing work together. Um, you know, you get in front of a whiteboard, you, you, you pull out some, some scratch paper and you just throw some ideas down and really starting to kind of evolve. This is something we're doing is evolving our design process so that uh, if, you know, if it's the right circumstances, we just start doing the work with them and we show them crappy prototypes. You know, we show them things that we're going to throw away, but, but we get something real and tangible in front of them um, really to kind of demonstrate the thought process. Because if they're involved in that, uh, then it, it allows you all to kind of develop the idea together uh, to a point where you're either all really excited or you're all kind of coming together and saying, okay, well, this clearly isn't working out the way that we expected. No problem. Let's move on to the next thing. So, so I believe kind of pairing this idea of, of, you know, show, don't tell, you know, with kind of selling them along the lines or along the way really works well because, you know, you're, you're really getting that behind the, the scenes exposure to the process or providing that behind the scenes exposure to the process that you, uh, that you use to create your deliverables. That's great. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, let's see what else we got here. One of the uh, one of the other ones I, I this is, this was really almost more of a personal lesson learned, and I've I've tried my best to to instill it in the rest of the company is this idea of working in time blocks. Um, I actually call it modular time management, but that's only because I'm a I'm a, I'm a business nerd and I love coming up with acronyms and and <laughs> academic sounding names for things. But the idea here is that. You know, especially for the folks that are more in kind of a maker role, right? Those that are our designers and our developers and are producing content, and the way they work is is much more of a heads down, deep dive approach. You you have to structure your days in a way that provides a ample amount of time to get that type of deep thinking done. Um, so one thing that we all kind of encourage uh, within the company is. You know, we have our Monday meetings. We usually do a team day every Wednesday, so we're that's where we stack up our more collaborative and, and kind of review meetings. And then Fridays we'll have our kind of reflection meeting. Second half of the day, Monday, Friday, or all day Tuesday, Wednesday. Sorry, Tuesday, Thursday. We really try to allow for very, very long periods of uninterrupted work. Um, so for myself, every Tuesday, usually from ten to two, I block that four-hour period out just to write. Um, you know, because I, I am managing the marketing of the business, it's really important that I get at least one article done a week. Um, so, so mm -hmm. that's my time where I can just really dive into one particular task and we'll do the same thing with, you know, a specific client deliverable. It's like, okay, we got to whatever, do an audit of this website. Let's block out two hours, heads down, you know, meetings, phone calls, et cetera, pushed off and just do that particular chunk of work. Um, so we're big believers in this kind of blocking, uh, approach to, to time management. That's cool. Yeah, I know that at least right now, uh, our owner, who's also happens to be my brother, he blocks out time for himself where he's like, no meetings, I just need to work on logos because mm -hmm. he's a designer. And, uh, and you know, for the most part, we can do that. Well, I haven't thought about actually doing that for the whole team, but that's actually a pretty good idea because we're, we have an open office environment and it gets pretty chaotic. There's lots of interruptions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's what happens, uh, you know, and it's, it's, if, if, if everyone isn't on the same page around the rules, you know, especially for project managers and account managers, I mean, their job is, is management, right? Their job is checking in with people and finding out the status of things. And that's a, that's a huge interruption for designers and developers. So, you know, by, by kind of building in this understanding across the, the company culture that, hey, there are going to be blocks of times when everyone's in headphones and we're all kind of doing our thing. Um, it helps to ensure that those those interruptions don't take place. 
The next thing too, uh, and this is something honestly that we we almost have to revisit all the time, but it's a nice reminder, is you know every project is going to have a bump in the road, and uh, things are going to be um, the requests are going to come up that are out of scope, uh, or delays are going to come up that are going to compromise the the schedule, and we understand you know the necessity to to stay on budget and to to get the required work done and to hit hit deadlines, etc. I mean we value that tremendously with our clients, but trying to, you know, hit budget, hit scope and hit timeline uh, consistently when you start facing interruptions and, uh, you know, requests that weren't ever thought of, et cetera, it, it's really, it's really difficult. Um, so we try yeah. to take a stance with our clients and, and sort of say, listen, between those three things, between budget, scope and timeline, what's the most important thing? You know, what, what is there absolutely no sort of negotiation on? Um, for a lot of clients, timeline, totally negotiable, you know, yeah, we want to do it, you know, quickly, but, but doesn't really matter when, um, in that case, you know, they might be more budget conscious. So for them, they're like, listen, if, if we have to scale the scope down a little bit to make sure that we don't mess around with the budget and extend the timeline, that's fine. Uh, other clients, they say, Hey budget, we can fudge a little bit, but we have to hit that, you know, June 1st date, whatever it is. Um, so really trying to upfront, figure out what is the most important thing to the client, uh, between those three it just helps give you a little bit of a North star because then when it comes to these bumps in the road, you have some sort of framework in which you can use to make your decisions around, uh, you know, how do you, how do you manage the project at that point? And how do you sort of, uh, how and when do you, uh, get that information from, from the client? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, one of the benefits of doing that breaking the breakout between the planning phase and what we call the delivery phase, where we're actually doing the design and development work, is that it gives us an opportunity to to dive in, get a good understanding of things, um, scope everything out properly, but then take a quick step back, right? Before we commit to moving into the delivery phase, that's when we, in a way, kind of repropose the project. Um, you know, so we go over our original estimate, we talk about what's changed, and we, we kind of finalize all that. And that's the moment in the project when we oftentimes will also address what we call project policies. Um, and this is, this is sort of our opportunity to kind of set expectations around things like communication, uh, revisions, um, you know, uh, file management, whatever it might be. And that time is usually when we'll bring up things like, okay, as we're going into this, you know, we're probably going to have some, some tough points in this project. Let's just be prepared. What should we be using as our North Star? Uh, you know, how often do we want to communicate, you know, to ensure that we're, we're at least on top of any interruptions, you know, kind of setting those policies in place, usually at that moment. Does that become an actual document, the project policies? It does, yeah. It's, so we we put together what we call a project plan at the end of the planning phase. And the project plan is, is uh, all of the it's all of the thinking and the strategy of the project, but not the deliverables. So the wireframes are separate, you know, any analytics analysis, all the stuff that we do there is, is kind of its own. The project plan is specifically the scope, um, the cost time. Uh, so, so yeah, the budget, the, the timeline, uh, the policies, kind of breaking out all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then we'll, we might sometimes also put together an objectives document, which is kind of like a scope, but it's a bit more focused on kind of what the strategic objectives are rather than the kind of tactical requirements associated with the project. Nice. That seems like a good way to to avoid unnecessary scope creep. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As much as as much as possible. And uh, and this kind of jumps right into the next one. This this idea of of having a process, um, but knowing that the process will change, I think, is really important. And one thing that we we've actually done, and this kind of addresses both the scope question and the process question, is we've introduced this concept of uh, what we call a flex fund, um, which is which is kind of a neat idea. So in all of our projects, we we carve out a certain number of hours, usually about twenty to thirty hours, where we kind of come out of the gate and say, listen, we know 
that things are going to be out of scope. We know that things are going to be out of process. In other words, like, you know, we've done two revisions, you want a third, or, uh, you know, we've already approved design, we're in development, now you want to make a design tweak. Those things are going to happen. It's impossible to expect, no matter how good your process is, and you should have a process, but no matter how good it is, those kind of changes will come up. Um, so what we do is we have this idea of a flex fund where we have 25 hours, let's say, that we can allocate towards anything that's out of scope or out of process, which gives clients enough flexibility where we don't have to worry about a one-hour change here, a couple hours here or there. Um, but it also gives us some some peace of mind knowing that we are, in a sense, billing for that. You know, that the time has been allocated. There is a budget for that time. And once we get kind of down to the bottom of it, then we sort of can take a step back and say, hey, listen, guys, like, we scoped this all out ahead of time. We agreed to how this was going to work. We allocated a certain kind of contingency fund, this flex fund, to cover things that weren't out of process, out of scope. We've already burnt through all of that. Like We're clearly kind of derailing for what the original plan was. Let's come up with some adjustments to this project. So it kind of gives you that buffer um, between you know a perfect project, which never happens, and a, a totally derailed project. So do you let clients know that that flex um, fund exists beforehand or is it sort of just a conversation that comes up later on yeah we do so what, what we'll do is uh as we're getting into that uh project plan that's one of the things that's outlined in the budget is we say okay 25 hours specifically to do the kind of flex fund thing nice yeah um and the last couple of things i think you know kind of take a take a little bit of a, a step back from sort of the delivery side of the business and do kind of a, a bit more of a focus on the sales and marketing side i mean one of the things that you know i'm a big believer in is um when it comes to marketing people don't really care about your agency. <laughs> you know, they don't really care about uh, the awards that you've won. They don't really care about how, you know, good looking your CEO is. They don't really care about, you know, <laughs> these kind of promotional things. What they do care about, though, is what you can teach them. Uh, what they do care about is uh, how you can promote um, your other partners, you know, your clients, how you can promote your vendors. Um, people get really excited when you promote them. Uh, so for instance, I mean, you're interviewing me, I'm very excited for this, you know, interview, this is great. Um, you know, so yeah. in a way, it's it's promoting me, but I'm going to promote you guys because of this. So it's, it's, it's really valuable to take the perspective when it comes to marketing on not how can I get other people excited about me, but how can I be excited about other people promote them because that in turn will lead to us getting promoted. All right, if I help you, you help me kind of a deal. Um, so really, really trying to embrace that. I mean, we're we're huge promoters of of Shopify, the platform we use, um, which is great because everything we do that promotes Shopify, they promote that, which in turn kind of promotes us. Um, and then the last thing too, you know, when it comes to when it comes to marketing, is that especially as a small agency, especially as a small agency that doesn't actually have a dedicated marketing staff, you you have to almost do less marketing to do better marketing. Um, if you try to be on every social media platform, if you try to to attend every single event, if you try to um, you know write content every single day, it's just not going to work. You know, one, it's just going to be impossible to do all that, and two, it's going to be even further impossible to do that to any degree of quality. So, you know, I'm a big believer in trying to figure out what is what what works for your audience, what works for your particular service offering, and for, from your perspective, you know, if you're if you're someone who likes to create content and your content resonates with your audience, invest in content. If you're a face-to-face -face person, you want to shake some hands, get out there and promote it that way. Try to figure out what are the most effective marketing channels for you specifically, for your agency, and, and double down in, in one or two of those rather than trying to do everything because it, it's just going to be impossible to keep up with it. Yeah, it's interesting. We have 
everybody around here is, well, I wouldn't say everybody, but you know, we're introverted creative types, but our uh, account director is the exact opposite and she loves everybody and talks to everybody and goes to everything. <laughs> and that's, that's been a really great asset for us as far as marketing goes. She's just a real total go-getter. And that I suppose that's another thing to add to it is, you know, to sort of hire for those, those empty spaces, you know, hire for your, um, weaknesses a little bit. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big believer in that. I mean, one, one of the one of the perspectives that I have on hiring as a whole is to really take the time, you know, as an agency owner or whatnot, to, to take inventory of everything that you do in the business and look at all those activities and determine, you know, if you were to do it at a very granular level, I, I actually have an activity I call uh, uh, base analysis. It's this ridiculous acronym for, <laughs> for, for the thing. But basically what I'll do is I'll sit down, I'll write out everything to, in as much detail as I can around my, the tasks I perform in the company. And I'll ask myself three questions across each one of those. And, and, and basically it's, it's, do I enjoy doing this? Uh, am I good at doing this? And does this actually kind of contribute to the growth of the business? And if I don't get threes out of threes on the activities, um, I kind of put them on my list of, of things to outsource, things to delegate, things to hire for, things to automate, things to eliminate, whatever it is. I have to find a way to get those off my plate. Uh, because as, the, as you know, the, the, the managing director, CEO, president, whatever you call yourself of your agency, your job really needs to be on, on the growth aspect of the firm. And ideally, you're going to be doing it in a way that you're, you're good at and in, in a way that you're going to enjoy. Um, so, so there's some sustainability. So it's, it's sort of a, a big hiring perspective I have is going through that activity to figure out where the gaps are and then hire for those gaps. Yeah, that's great. Interesting. I have to have to try that out. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It takes a little time, but it's worth it. That's cool. Well, uh, so that's great that you're still recording um, these mistakes. Do you have like a master sort of log of all of the uh, the mistakes and lessons that you've learned? Yeah, that go we do. It's and the scary thing is when you start to see the same lessons repeating over and over again in different you know different uh, language. You're like, wait a second, that's the same thing that we said in March last year. Why are we still dealing with that problem? Um, <laughs> but yeah, we do. So we've got all 2014 logged, 15 logged, and now we've got you know four months worth of 2016 logged too. It it's inspiring to me because I know that we need to work a little bit more on sort of that that sort of project review and sort of you know where did we go wrong how how can we fix it next time there's a little bit of that that goes on just constantly all the time but having a slightly more formalized process I think could be very beneficial yeah yeah it's tremendously beneficial and if anything I, I mean it's it's a great activity great team bonding activity you know if if you're running an agency and you're looking for you know, ways to kind of improve culture and, and things like that. I mean, I would definitely encourage you to, to do an offsite, um, you know, and just spend the whole time talking about what have we learned as an agency, go through project to project, uh, you know, go through, um, uh, awards you've won or awards you've lost, or go through marketing that's worked, marketing that hasn't deals you've won deals you've lost, it, pick any aspect that you want and, and really just try to figure out what, what went well, what did not go so well, what did we learn? What can we do about it going forward? I think it's a great, great activity and a great way to kind of build um, some camaraderie around it and get some interesting insights when you start to really circle that around the group. Thanks so much for being on the show. There's such great information. I, I can't uh, wait to go back and listen to it and edit it and uh, publish it for the world. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Chris. No, it's been a blast. I love, uh, I love talking about my mistakes and failures. I think it's, uh, you know, that kind of honest, <laughs> honest exposure is the best. You know, that's where people really learn something. So especially myself. <laughs> great. Well, thanks for being on the show. Yeah, you bet. Thank you. 
You've been listening to the Creative Agency Podcast with your host, Chris Bolton, who when he's not podcasting or being a dad, he's the Digital Strategy Director at Murmur Creative in Portland, Oregon. Be sure to visit us online at creativeagencypodcast.com.